Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like... <laughs> Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at I was talking to him in bed one night, and he said to me, not his dad, he said to me, Mama, do black people eat poop? This is Jewel Parker Rhodes. She writes novels for young adults, and she took that question from her son in Amazing Stride. And I said, well, Mama's black, right? And he said, yes. I said, have you ever seen Mama eat poop? No. I said, there. Black people don't eat poop. And it turns out that he had been being harassed at school. Jewel's kids are grown now. She's Black, her husband's white, and they've been talking about race and discrimination since way before they became parents. But Jewel knows that not all families talk openly about these things, especially if they're not forced into it by facing discrimination themselves. Jewel's latest novel, Ghost Boys, is about a police shooting of an unarmed 12-year-old boy. It's meant to give kids a starting point to talk about racial violence and injustice. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. And today, Jewel Parker Rhodes will tell us about the history and family experiences that inspired her to write Ghost Boys. Heads up, we're going to be talking about police shootings and hate crimes. The language will at times be graphic. And let me just say, when I first sat down with this book, I was worried it was going to leave me with the same devastating mix of hopelessness and rage that I can feel sometimes just scrolling through my newsfeed. But here's what you need to know about Jewel. She's a force for empathy. Her book is packed with a remarkable amount of hope, particularly about middle schoolers. We're going to be getting to that, too. Ghost Boys tells the story of Jerome, a seventh grader who lives in present-day Chicago. He's got chubby cheeks, loves video games like Minecraft. He's a short kid. He wants to be a basketball player, but there's just no way. Jerome gets bullied a lot, doesn't have many friends, until one day when this new kid named Carlos shows up at school. Jerome shows Carlos the ropes, like how to hide out during lunch so the two of them don't get beat up. To thank Jerome for being his friend— Carlos loans Jerome a toy gun to play with. Later that day, Jerome is out pretend shooting aliens and zombies when a white police officer mistakes a toy gun for an actual weapon. He shoots and kills him. Most of the book is written in Jerome's voice, but after he dies. So he's speaking as a ghost. 
He's invisible to pretty much everybody, including his family. Here's Jewel reading a scene from early in the book, just after Jerome's been shot. Every goodbye ain't gone, says Grandma. Mom, hush with that nonsense, complains Mother. Every black person in the South knows it's true. Dead, living, no matter. Both worlds are close. Spirits aren't gone. Superstition, scoffs Reverend. This is Chicago. Jerome's soul is already gone. I kneel. I'm still here, Ma. I'm still here. We'll bury him tomorrow, cries Ma, and I want to cry too, though my eyes don't make tears anymore. Sue, I'm going to sue, says Pop. No sense why my boy's dead and those white men are walking around alive, free. Emmett, just like Emmett Till, says Grandma. He was a Chicago boy, too. This isn't 1955, says Reverend Calming. Tamir Rice then shouts Pop, 2014. He died in Cleveland. Another boy shot just because he's black. Grandma looks at the space where I'm standing. Her head is cocked sideways. She's breathing soft. No justice, no peace, says Pop. Since slavery, white men been killing blacks. Then he starts to cry. Ma hugs him, and they hold tight to each other like they're both going to drown. My heart shatters. Nothing hurt this much. Not even the bullets searing my back. Shortly after the scene, Jerome spots a kid, another ghost boy like him, with paper-thin skin, high cheekbones, old-timey clothes, and a brimmed hat. Jerome soon finds out that this is the ghost of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago who was brutally murdered in 1955. Emmett plays a big role in Ghost Boys, mainly because his death and the civil rights movement it helped to spark had a big impact on Jewel's life. Now, I'm white, and I've got to admit, pretty much everything I've learned about Emmett Till, I learned in school. But Jewel's connection to Emmett Till is much more direct. She was born in 1954, just a year before Emmett was killed. Every year for thereafter, you know, including when I was in elementary school, Jet and Ebony would rerun the pictures of Emmett Till, you know, on the anniversary of his death. And in those magazines, I saw pictures of how he had been battered by two adult white men, how he had been shot uh, and thrown into the river. That kind of violence was not kept from me as a young child. And I think my family, my grandmother felt that as a Black child, I needed to know about racism so I wouldn't be so vulnerable. In the version of the story I always heard, Emmett Till was visiting his family in Mississippi. A white store clerk named Carolyn Bryant claimed he came into her store and whistled at her. That night, Emmett was kidnapped, tortured, and lynched by two white men. Oh, and Andrea, can I say something? Yes. I'm not sure we want to say lynching because he wasn't, he he was battered, uh, shot in the head. His eyes were gouged out. So it's it was, it went beyond, I mean, beyond lynching as in, you know, you think of the body perhaps still being intact. This boy suffered tremendously before he died. 
So then what do we call that? I know, I know. Um, I, I, I just assume lynching is a mob killing, but it might even seem more tame, right? Like that it implies a tree. Oh, see, and you know, that's really, oh, girl, you haven't been living in my world, which I'm glad you haven't. You're absolutely right that lynching would, in fact, be the mob killing. I think maybe that because I've just been so deep in this, um, you know, that, that I'm not reacting to it that way. But I think for your listeners and readers, um, I think that it's, I think that is a, perhaps a good, a good way to say it. Three days after Emmett was kidnapped, his mutilated body was found in the Tallahatchie River, tied to a cotton gin fan. An all-white jury acquitted Emmett's two murderers in barely over half an hour. His mother said, I want to show the world what they did to my boy. And in fact, when the world saw it, people rose up, in particular, you know, people of all ethnicities rose up and started a real strong, vigorous civil rights movement. So that gives you the sense of how horrific that picture was. In researching Emmett Till for the book, what did you learn about what actually had happened to him? Most of the research regarding Emmett Till suggested that he had somehow, you know, been smart mouth, you know, it said, hey, baby, or used his Chicago slang that Carolyn Bryant, the storekeeper, felt disrespected by. There was also perhaps the idea that he had a speech impediment that caused him to make a kind of whistling sound that he might have whistled at her in a sexually suggestive way. And Carolyn Bryant actually testified that he did, in fact, assault her. So everywhere I looked, everyone sort of gave a kind of half credence to this idea that Emmett might have behaved inappropriately. So my book was done. I'd written a scene that maybe he had had his actions and his words misinterpreted. And then Timothy Tyson came out with the book, The Blood of Emmett Till, in which in that book, Carolyn Bryant confesses at the age of 82 that she lied, that Emmett, as she says, didn't do anything to die for. And in fact, all Emmett did was put a penny down and get some bubblegum, walk to the door, turn around, and say goodbye. Everything else was made up. So I had to tell my publishers, stop, bring my book out of copy editing. I've got to change that scene. And as far as I know, um, my middle grade fiction might be the only book that has this rewritten history that has the absolute truth about what happened. You know, that finally, after 60-some years, the truth is coming out. In your story, you have Emmett say to Jerome, I'm you. Well, Emmett says, I'm you to Jerome, and that they are both victims of racism or else it's legacy racial bias. I think today, you know, 60 years later, yes, the world is a better place, but there is still conscious, but maybe even more insidious, unconscious racism. And so that's why I had the historical frame from the overt racism to the possibility that, yes, the policeman was afraid, not because, you know, he was an overt racist, but he had been taught through our culture to have a bias that projects over and over again images of black men, black boys as being 
threatening and aggressive. And I think that that's where the concept of ghost boys comes from, that sense that I imagine there are a whole slew of young boys, you know, wandering the earth. And my favorite scene is when the boys start appearing as ghosts, Trayvon, Laquan, others over history that have died, and they all lift up their heads and roar their pain. I'm you, you're me, we are all together. In the story, Jerome can't understand why he's still a ghost, why he's left hanging around watching as his family mourns him and suffers. And Emmett Till takes him on a journey to show him that his death matters and that it's important for him to tell his story so that someone else can be empowered to fight for justice and social equity. Why ghosts, though? Like, why fill your story with these spirits? One of the foundational principles of many of the African faiths was the fact that Everything is alive, that everything animate and inanimate has a spirit, and those spirits don't disappear. And so, therefore, ancestors, elders, the legacy of the dead are all part of what we should honor, are all part of, you know, sort of this ongoing tradition that the dead are still with us. And my grandmother, who raised me when I was an infant and then died just as I was deciding to become a writer, I feel her presence every single day. I feel that I can access her, her goodness, her love, and it restores me. That's the African-American saying, Every goodbye ain't gone. That Emmett, Trayvon, Laquan, Tamir, they are still present as spirits. And in my novel, they take that spiritual presence to sort of shape the world to improve upon it and make it better. Emmett, Trayvon, Laquan, and Tamir. It's the memory of these real boys that helped Jewel write this book and the character of Jerome. But it didn't come easy. I think I resisted every step of the way writing this book. And the book was not my idea. It was my editor's idea. Um, So I felt that if I didn't try to do this very hard thing, maybe who would, you know, because it's nuts, (laughs) especially for (laughs) middle graders trying to write about this for, for middle graders. And it was really funny because with Ghost Boys, I wrote like the first 27 pages. And then I said, that's it. The book is done. Shortest book on record. It's done. Jewel had these 27 pages about Jerome's murder and the death of Emmett Till. And she put them away, and she thought this was over. But it wasn't. The process of writing had gotten her remembering parts of her own life. We lived in a tenement in Pittsburgh. We were very, very poor. All the adults worked, and Grandma took care of us, all kids under the age of five. Can you imagine that? And then it was during the later, there was the crack epidemic, um, you know, the drugs, and a lot of family members ended up in prison or ended up, you know, in, in battles and, and fights and, and being, being hurt. Back then, it hadn't even occurred to Jewel that she could become a writer. When I was a kid, even though I wrote stories all the time, even though wonderful teachers and librarians fed me books all the time, and my family called me the little professor because that's all I ever wanted were books, you know, I had never read a book by a black person or any person of color until I became a junior in college. And when I saw that black women could write books, 
that was when I decided that's going to be my profession. And I remember calling grandmother and telling her, I'm going to be a storyteller. And she says, oh, like me, because she used to tell us oral stories on the porch. And I said, yes, grandmother, just like you. A week after that phone call, Jewel's grandmother passed away. She died in a hospital elevator because the hospital she'd chosen, the only one in town that gave privileges to black doctors, they didn't have the necessary equipment on the first floor in order to save her life. I was dredging up these memories that I didn't know that I still had or the ways in which things that happened in my childhood had wounded me. Ghost Boys brought all of that up inside me. Why should I have had to experience so much trauma as a child? And all the while, as Jewel was thinking about this, she was watching the news, watching videos of boys who look like her son Evan dying at the hands of the police. And she began to realize what she was missing from those 27 pages. The first iteration of the book was just sadness. Jerome was shot. He died, saw the bleakness in his family, went to the courthouse and saw that the police officer was set free, and he had such rage in the sense that the world was unjust. That was the 27 pages. And that isn't good enough, because life is much more complicated. People are much more complicated. I think I didn't have that sort of quite yet depth of compassion for all my characters. You know, a fiction writer has to love all their characters. Right, because you had to find empathy for the police officer who shot this child, for the 911 operator who didn't get the story right, for the judge who wasn't able to find a way to press charges. I mean, you had to find empathy for so many people in this universe you created. How did you realize Sarah belonged in this story, Sarah being the young daughter of the white police officer who shot Jerome? I knew from a technical perspective that Sarah would immediately humanize the police officer, that she would provide an entree into having um, an understanding of the impact of how, you know, shooting Jerome affected his family. But I also believe in the glorious multi-ethnic fifth graders and sixth graders and seventh and eighth graders that I meet who don't see color, I believe, in all the ways that we as adults might see colors. And so it was important to me that there be Carlos as an Hispanic boy, Jerome as an African-American boy, and this wondrous white girl who, through their multi-ethnic backgrounds, are ready to move the world forward. Now, earlier in the show, I told you that Jerome as a ghost, is invisible to pretty much everyone. And I said pretty much because there is one living person in the book who can see him. And that's Sarah, the police officer's daughter. Here's Jewel reading a passage from the moment Jerome and Sarah realize they're able to talk to each other. Jerome speaks first. He shot me. My dad protects and serves. That's what policemen do. He didn't protect me. Everybody in my neighborhood knows cops do whatever they want. That's not true. He upholds the law. I grunt. Upset, the girl rocks back on her heels. I don't care. Her bedroom is like cotton candy, sickly sweet. Ballerinas on the lampshade glow. Two tiny stuffed pigs rest on the pillows. Nothing bad is supposed to happen to whoever sleeps in this room. 
Jerome? I don't answer. Can I help? I almost scream. Can you make me alive again? But I don't. This girl is crying. I'm surprised a stranger is crying for me. I can't change things. You're all over the news. I don't want to be in the news. What are they saying? Depends. Before I can say on what, the door opens. Sarah, time for bed. Yes, Dad. Officer Moore is skinny with big hands and reddened eyes. He hugs his daughter tight. I think she might break. But Sarah doesn't pull away. Want to go skating tomorrow? Sure, Dad. He kisses her forehead, and I'm jealous. Who ever kiss me? Dad, is it true he was 12? Officer Moore holds Sarah at arm's length. It's a rough neighborhood. Same age as me. You don't know him. You didn't see him. Sarah looks at me. She does see me. We're the same height, probably the same grade. Seventh. He's, she points, stops, stutters. He was my height. Why was it important to make them the same height? One of the things that's true in our world is that when people look at black children, they see them as older than they are. They see them as adults when they're still children. They see them as, you know, aggressive. Jerome, he was perceived as a man, and that made the officer fearful. But if he didn't perhaps have racial bias, he would have seen this is an eighth grader. It's a kid. Look at his chubby cheeks. So clearly for me, the police officer, he didn't see Jerome the way that he would have seen his 12-year-old daughter, Sarah. They're the same age, same height. Why did he see one as a threat and the other as just his loving daughter? In Ghost Boys, Jerome and Sarah find their fates tied up in each other. And they start asking questions about the reality of racial violence in America. When we come back, Jewel talks about confronting that reality with her own children. Stay with us. (laughs) Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze. And it felt a little like... Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at We're back with young adult novelist Jewel Parker Rhodes. So I'm I'm curious, 
when you started talking to your own kids about race? <laughs> if, if you really want to know the honest truth, I actually was afraid to marry my husband because I was worried about racism towards us as a couple. You know, um, it it really was a, a, a different era in America. And we were living in Maryland, which not too, you know, just several few decades before had actually sort of permitted by law in the Loving case interracial marriages. So I'm a short black chick. Brad is a six, four and a half tall, Viking white dude, you know, literally his grandmother's from Norway. Blonde hair, blue eyes. But at first, Jill didn't see those blue eyes. And think about this as racial bias. When he asked me, because he wanted me to see him as white, right? He said to me, what color are my eyes? And I said, they're brown. He says, no, they're not. They're blue. But it was sort of, I, w- I was trying to make it to me in my mind somehow that we could still be a couple because he wasn't the the quintessential blonde-haired, blue-eyed kind of guy. Well, it's not your fault. You couldn't see them. He's so high up. I mean, six four. <laughs> I, I, that's true. And you know, he he saw me and he thought that I was I was beautiful. But he learned. We talked about how like he would maybe take me on a date, and literally everybody in the room might like stare at us and glare at us. And then I would tell him, you can't take me to all places, you know, Um, that we had to find zones where we felt safer as a couple, safe that, you know, somebody wouldn't beat him uh, or somebody wouldn't, you know, sort of chastise me. And so I said to my husband, well, I'll marry you, but I'm not going to have any kids. And my husband, who's very wise, says, don't you think you're patronizing our kids-to-be? You don't know what they're going to be like. And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. So my husband, too, also (laughs) is younger than me. He's six and a half years younger than me. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Good work. Because I think, yeah, yeah, the youth (laughs) are getting better and better. Um, When we finally talked about having children, we talked about how— we would keep our children's hearts pedal open. And that's a phrase from Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God. That it wouldn't be right for me to give them my experiences with racism. That the way that my grandparents, you know, and father had given to me, that they don't then share in my wounds, you know, and that I perpetuate inadvertently a kind of bitterness. Um, Mm -hmm. So both of them have really open and good hearts, but they are aware of racism and racial bias because they need to be in order not to be so vulnerable in the world. Kelly, their daughter, is 30 now, and she has a really fair complexion. Their son, who's three years younger, has darker skin. Jewel says that from the moment their son was born, she knew she had this dual mission for him, to raise a boy with emotional armor, to protect him from the world, but also a boy who was sensitive enough to truly feel alive in it. She named him Evan Khalil, which means warrior lover. It was also important to Jewel that her children, regardless of what they looked like, were able to choose their own identity. Our children should feel the right to say, I am both descendant from Europe and the Norwegians, as well as from Africa. They could say I'm multiracial, or they could say I'm black, or they could say whatever they wanted. And in fact, Evan, my son, for the longest time would say, I'm not going to pick any category, which I think is the wisest, smartest thing to do. Because Evan said, I am Evan. He was always Evan. That 
didn't mean their family was insulated from prejudice. Once they went on a family vacation, and Kelly and Evan came back from a craft activity in tears. The teacher told them they couldn't possibly be related. They didn't look enough alike. Jewel was frequently mistaken for the nanny when she was out with Kelly, and when Brad took Evan out, it was always, oh, how nice, you adopted a son. So those kinds of things would always strike hard at our heart that we felt as though we were always justifying that we were as much a family as anyone else. As Evan got older and taller, it began to really dawn on Brad how his son was more at risk in the world. Occasionally, you know, my husband and I would say, well, be careful if you're stopped by a policeman, Evan, or be careful, you know, of walking, you know, in certain neighborhoods, or be careful that people might see you differently. And he would say, oh, mom, dad, you know, pshaw, you know, because he lived in this wonderful, you know, world where he was accepted and it was a multi-ethnic world. When Evan became a teenager, that was when the world started seeing him differently. That was when he started experiencing the hostility that somehow as a teenager, maybe like 12-year-old Tamir or, you know, 14-year-old Emmett Till, that as a teenager, he was a threat. Um, He endured stop and frisk when he was a student um, at Columbia. He endured, um, you know, disparagement, name-calling. He went through it all, and my heart really broke because the world had taught him, nope, racism is still alive and kicking. But I remember when he was a junior in high school, he was in a private high school, and he was upset one evening, and he was wandering the campus, and we had a home right across from the campus, but there were people, students who were on campus all the time because it was a boarding school. And to this day, I really don't know what had been bothering him, but he wasn't confronting anyone. He wasn't loud or bombastic. Um, He wasn't, um, you know, literally doing anything except being an angst-ridden teenage boy. And one of the employees was upset that Evan was upset and saw Evan as a threat and called the dean of students. And the dean of students called me. So I walked across the street to say, you know, Evan, you know, what, what's, what's going on? But this older white gentleman who had reported him turned and said to me, next time I'll call the police. And I thought, Oh my God, my, my, that, that I was never so scared in my whole life. And that whole school to prison pipeline, which still exists for, you know, young black children today, I saw it in my eyes. And then, you know, at that moment, you know, um, you know, I, I classically, you know, brought Evan home and, and, and held him and gave him love. I'm trying to keep my son alive, but not to, traumatize him more and also to keep his heart pedal open to the world. Tell me about Evan. What did he he look like as a teenager? Oh, actually, and he hates this. Evan kind of looked like Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Evan, as a teenager, had black curly hair that he had shaved very close to his head. Big black eyes with the longest black eyelashes, high cheekbones, and skin just as smooth as any caramel. And he's very 
you know, elegant and and dapper. Evan is my son who donated a kidney to a stranger. Evan is my son who at 17 started fostering homeless men. You know, Evan is my son, you know, who wants to work in medicine and he wants to be able to give medicine care free of charge. I mean, Evan is my kid who I swear has the soul of a, of a priest. Um, so for me, when I look at him, I don't understand how people can't see the, 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 the good soul that he is. How did you help Evan, you know, as his mother to help stop him from internalizing that racism that he was experiencing? Well, I think in raising him, I always tried to have the light touch of, oh, the world is a horrible place and one day you'll find out. No, that's not what I said. The world is a wonderful place. And Evan, sometimes you need to be aware. (laughs) People might, you know, um, be discriminatory towards you. Jewel's mission now is to bring that message, both about the harm of racism and also the hope of overcoming it to kids everywhere, to your kids. Next up, we'll hear how she pulls that off in the final chapters of Ghost Boys. Oh, you have your mouth pulled, don't you? Advertisements. Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like. <laughs> Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. You gotta come on, guys. You have to be like, Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western. We're back with Jewel Parker Rhodes. Jewel is a grandma now. About six months into writing Ghost Boys, her daughter Kelly had a girl named Clara. Jewel was there for the birth. And I got to see Clara's head crowned with this beautiful full head of black hair. And it was the most amazing, significant experience of my life. Did it change your work to become a grandma? It added a new kind of urgency. It, um, And I might cry, too, because... Having fought the battles and seen, you know, the civil rights movement happen, and I always had a sense that we were making progress. And I feel as though America is retreating on racism and racial bias. And it really bothers me that that, that's the legacy for my granddaughter right now. Um, I won't be around to help fight the good fight. So we need all these middle schoolers now to change the world. That's right. Jules counting on the most pimply and voice crackly among us to change the world. I think middle schoolers are ready now to bear witness. But I think that the individual parents and teachers who know these children more specifically are the ones to judge how much and when. I think that my novel gives them a loving entry into discussing issues of prejudice and discrimination. But children, we can't patronize them. They know that the world is not always a hospitable, equitable place. If you take the average seventh grader, it'll be a blink of an eye before they're voting, before they're 
you know, possibly fighting and defending our country before they're marrying, before they're going to college. So I argue this this idea that, oh, we have to take it slow um, is off the mark if we keep them in darkness. We have to prepare them and guide them. And middle school age is to me, the right age. So I tell people, I believe in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders. They are going to be a force for reckoning. In Ghost Boys, Sarah, the daughter of the white police officer, is one of those kids Jewel is imagining, a middle schooler to be reckoned with. She's confused. Who is this ghost Emmett? How is he connected to Jerome? How could her dad kill a boy her age? She reaches out to the school librarian, and the librarian shows Sarah a picture of Emmett Till in his casket, the same photo that Jewel saw when she was a young girl. And then Sarah decides to look up the video of Jerome's death. She becomes inspired and creates a memory project, a website documenting the stories of Black children shot by police. Jerome is... You know, he's finished telling his story to Sarah. Sarah has taken up the cause, and yet he can't leave yet. And then as a writer, I thought, why isn't he leaving? And Le- Jerome, actually, he disappears for a second, and then he comes back, and he's upset that Sarah is carrying anger toward her dad. And he says to her, Sarah, you've got to talk to your dad. And he hangs around so that he can finally see Sarah go down into the living room, hug her dad, see that expression of love between them, and have Sarah say, Dad, help me with my memory project so that we remember um, boys who have died too soon, boys who have been murdered, including Jerome. And the father says, yes. I don't think as a living person I would have been able to do that. But Jerome, as the character, did that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you were surprised by Jerome, even though he came from you. You know? Oh yes. Oh, characters are amazing. It's like it's like it's in in amazing magic. But I do think It came from me, but perhaps in an unconscious way, that my unconsciousness was leading me to getting through to the other side toward love and grace. Jewel Parker Rhodes' book, Ghost Boys, is out now, and we'd love to hear what this conversation with Jewel brought up for you. What do you want your children to understand about race in America, and how are you making sure they get that lesson? We'll be having a conversation around this on our Instagram page. And we're actually going to be giving away five copies of Ghost Boys, signed by Jewel. To enter, go to our Instagram page, that's at Longest Shortest Time, and find the post with the Ghost Boys book cover. And by the way, if you are signed up for our newsletter, check your inbox. This week, all of our subscribers got a PDF of the first chapter of Ghost Boys. And we're going to be saying out other cool exclusives like this in the future, just for our newsletter subscribers. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next one. You can sign up right now on our website, longestshortesttime.com. This show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Kristen Clark. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is Reverend John Delore. Ryan Roberts at Stanford Video recorded Jewel's side of our interview for this week's show. 
Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time. When you were an awkward teen, did your mom ever make you cringe a little? Rachel Zucker might have you beat. Watching your own mother, like, you know, in this very revealing outfit with weird flowers in her hair on stage yelling, who will plow my vulva, was a bit much for my teenage self. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we love to hear what's been challenging or weird or funny or absurd about your life as a parent. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Dan Pashman from the Sporkful Podcast, and recently, my friend Alex and I got in an argument. You see, he says there's a difference between cheap and expensive vodkas. I say there isn't. So this week on the Sporkful, we find out who's right. We learn how vodka is made. Really, anything can make vodka. A Kit Kat? Kit Kat comes. Kit Kat has sugar in it. I can ferment it and therefore distill it. And we hear the story of the college dropout who invented the whole idea of super premium vodka back in the 90s. He essentially out of thin air goes, I want to make a vodka. So Absolute's charging 15, I'll charge 30. He didn't even have a product at this point. Then we order something called Vodka Concentrate on the internet, of course. We use it to make our own vodka and send it to a lab to have it tested against Grey Goose. How does our bathtub vodka measure up? Well, to find out, subscribe to The Sporkful today at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Best Western made booking our family beach vacation a breeze, and it felt a little like... Time to go. Okay, kids, back in the room. Good night. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western.